You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Mystery of Death, 15 Lectures, translated by Simon Blaxland DeLange. This is Lecture 6, given in Nuremberg on the 14th of March, 1915, entitled Moral Impulses and Their Results, The Relationship of the European Peoples to Their Folk Spirits, The Cultural Impulse of Eurythmy. It might at first seem, and also does seem to many people, as if that which one calls, in the true sense, clairvoyant powers, through which the beings and processes of the spiritual worlds can be recognized, are not available to people in everyday life, and are not developed within their souls. But this is not so. Clairvoyant powers are not forces which are necessarily unfamiliar and alien to people in their daily lives. This is not the case. On the contrary, what we develop in order to gain insight into the spiritual worlds, what we must draw forth from the deep foundations of the soul, is with a certain soul activity also present in a person's ordinary life. It is present in what one calls man's moral impulses, A truly moral deed, a truly moral impulse, derives from the same faculties of the soul that lead, through the corresponding development, to clairvoyant faculties. As far as ordinary life is concerned, the fact is that everything that a person does can come out of what resides within his bodily nature or what he has acquired in the course of life for and through his body. When someone develops desires, when he does this or that which he is induced to do through his education or his other life circumstances, it is the bodily nature from which the corresponding impulse proceeds. But there are in human life impulses that do not come from the bodily nature, where only the soul is involved when a person takes hold of these impulses. These are moral impulses. A truly moral deed is one for which the body is called upon for help in order that one can have a conception of the moral deed. But the impulse, the drive toward the moral deed, lies in the soul-spiritual realm. And this is independent of the body. One will never be able to give a definition of morality with mere philosophy. And it is characteristic of any philosophy that seeks to be a moral philosophy that it does not come to a right, satisfactory definition of morality if it does not start from the premise that it is possible for man to experience his soul-spiritual nature independently of the body. The only right way to define morality is to say that something is moral where a person decides what he does through forces that are independent of his body. Now, we know that human life is composed of moral, less moral, and immoral actions. 
The difference that exists between moral and immoral actions manifests itself in its true light only to occult investigation. In the smallest cycle of his life, the 24-hour period, a person enters into the state of sleep. This state of sleep consists in that the ego and astral body essentially leave the physical and etheric bodies and then live outside this physical and etheric organism. Now, it is not enough simply to state that the ego and astral body leave the physical and etheric bodies, for one must also be clear that in that the ego and astral body depart from the etheric and physical bodies, they are received into the spiritual worlds that supersensibly hold sway around us. We enter the supersensible worlds with our ego and astral body. If during the day, in our waking state, we have had a moral impulse and have accomplished a moral deed, there is the following situation. We must, as regards our ego and astral body, be received by the spirits of the next highest hierarchies, by the spirits that we include among the hierarchy of the Angeloi, Archangeloi, and so on. They must receive us. We, as it were, enter into them when we go to sleep. Just as by day we live in the body, so while we are asleep are we within the beings of the higher hierarchies. Thus we have this clearly in mind. Now if we have accomplished a moral deed or have had a moral impulse, the possibility exists for the beings of the next highest hierarchies to receive our ego and our astral body together with our moral impulses or whatever has continued to exist of them in our soul, in accordance with spiritual cosmic laws. If we have committed an immoral act or had an immoral impulse, we cannot enter during sleep with it. And with the residue of what has been formed within us as a result of the immoral impulse into the beings of the higher hierarchies. That within us which is immoral is indeed thrust back again into our bodily nature. The consequence of this is that everything that we bring into the spiritual worlds during sleep that is an after effect of something moral does not work within our physical and etheric bodies for it is taken away from them. On the other hand, immoral thoughts, immoral impulses, and immoral actions become something that is thrust back into the etheric body and physical body. It continues to work within them. Thus there is the possibility that when someone is in the state of sleep, between going to sleep and waking up, the results of his immoral actions are working within his physical and etheric bodies. In this respect, it is easy to recognize something that I have often spoken about in lectures, namely that language has a wonderful genius, that it works in a wonderfully genial way. When we speak of guilt, the German word schuld conveys the precise meaning of what is involved here. We equate what we owe to the spiritual world with our moral actions, but we remain in debt to the spiritual world with respect to what we have to leave behind in the body, our immoral thoughts, our immoral impulses, our immoral actions. Now consider the following. If we were to spend our life in such a way that we would perceive and think about only the things of the outer world, 
the processes in our physical body would themselves be quite different than they are, since we do not only think and perceive, but also remember what we have thought, perceived, and experienced. What we think, imagine, and feel goes right down into our etheric body, but the etheric body imprints it on the physical body, and that which the etheric body creates in the form of impressions in the physical body is memory. When in later life we recall something that we have previously experienced, this means that our astral body, which has then united itself with the etheric body, is directly juxtaposed with what has remained as an imprint, as a seal's impression in our physical body. The materialistic conception that has developed is naive. It is, so it is thought, as though one memory would be sitting here in the brain and another one there, as though arranged in little boxes. This is not true. Every memory has an impression which fundamentally corresponds to the whole head and to much else besides in the human form. And memories are intertwined rather than next to one another, as the naive materialist notion supposes. The activity of the memory is therefore dependent upon our astral body and etheric body being able to bring about impressions in our physical body. It is actually the same activity that occurs outwardly when we make a note of something for ourselves. When we look at our notes, what we have in our soul does not, of course, bear the least similarity to the signs that we have on the paper. On the paper are signs of some form or other, but through what we then make of them, we are stirred in our soul to re-enliven what we have noted down. A mental process takes place. And so it is with memory. What remains within us actually has essentially no more similarity to what appears in the soul when we recall it than what is on the paper has to what appears in our soul when we read what we have written. When beheld clairvoyantly, the situation where someone recalls something that he has previously experienced is like this. What lights up in his physical body is a sign that is in some way a copy of the human form beginning from the head and extending a little below it. These are signs. It is something else that appears in the memory, but these are signs. And what we experience as we remember is what the soul makes out of the signs. It is truly a subconscious reading that appears as memory. When natural science makes somewhat further progress and investigates the physical processes, it will come to be a help for spiritual science in that it will show that what remains in the body must first be subjected by the soul to a process that in the soul is fundamentally similar to reading. This process of remembering is a regular activity of the human soul. However, if we now send down into our body when going to sleep the results of immoral impulses, thoughts, or actions, we do not bring the immoral impulses that we have had forth from our physical body. As a result, something happens similar to what ordinarily happens in memory. The work on the physical body is imprinted there, 
And when a person now wants to go to sleep and his ego and astral body want to leave his physical and etheric bodies, this process begins. What he has to leave behind makes its impression in the way that memories do. And then come the pangs of conscience. Thus they are reflected back from that which was imprinted upon our physical body and also our etheric body through the events in question. This then remains. And because it remains like ordinary memories, these pangs of conscience remain and develop in intensity and then appear in the form of self-reproaches throughout our further life. That is the important thing that we come to, to see that moral behavior is a real process, that it is not something abstract, but that this moral behavior is a matter of bringing what we do here on earth up into the spiritual worlds. And as we surrender the results of our moral conduct to the higher hierarchies, they also in a certain sense remain within these higher hierarchies. But what we cannot take with us and goes on working within the physical and etheric bodies remains here on the earth. It is within the earthly process. When someone has passed through the gate of death, he must always look back at this. In that he does so, the impulse must arise within him to clear it away from the earthly process. This is the basis of the working of karma between death and a new birth. Thus we do indeed take the results of our moral impulses into our karma, but in that we bring them up into the spiritual worlds during sleep, they also make an impression there. We can say that the angels, the archangels, and also the spirits of personality now have that which we bring to them by way of moral impulses. What do they do with them? These moral impulses that are henceforth in the spiritual world are for the evolutionary course of the earth. They are the real fructifying seeds for later periods of the earth. It is not only that we preserve these results in our karma, but we bring up the impressions. And in future earthly epochs, the spirits of the higher hierarchies bear them down again. And these results of the moral impulses then in later earthly epochs form the fructifying seeds for the creative thinking of human beings and for human thinking as a whole. One may think that a period in earthly evolution is completely immoral so that no impressions of moral impulses would be born aloft into the spiritual worlds. A period would accordingly follow in earthly evolution when little would occur to people in relation to earthly life when they would have few ideas and concepts, when there would be a poverty as regards what can pervade and inspire life with soul qualities. Thus we stand with our moral impulses in a real cosmic process, and spiritual science, which makes this apparent to us, is therefore well able to heighten and energize our self-responsibility for it is only through it that we are aware what it means to be moral or immoral in human life. To be immoral means to take away from the earth its seeds of future life, to incorporate them in the physical earthly process in which they then become seeds of destruction 
for forthcoming earthly epochs. For, of course, they continue to be preserved there, because nothing is lost. They then obliterate what should continue to live vitally within human souls. Let us suppose that a significant number of people would decide to live immorally in a certain epoch. This would then bring about a later epoch that was impoverished in thoughts, and souls would come down to the earth and find a poverty of thought on the earth. They would be condemned to a barren life. Now there is the possibility that we not only become aware of the nature of morality, if we do not take active account of the true reality of morality, we create desolation on the earth. But we need and we have the possibility to receive something else into our soul development, and that is the knowledge of the supersensible. The earth has actually never been wholly without knowledge of the supersensible. We know that in ancient times humanity received a certain inheritance of clairvoyant capacities and faculties, and hence also of clairvoyant knowledge. And it is not so long ago that the after-effects of this clairvoyant knowledge still existed on the earth. We also know that we live in a time when this clairvoyant knowledge has for some centuries been depleted to the point of disappearing altogether, and it must be replaced by clairvoyant knowledge that is consciously attained. We are living in this important time. And yesterday we call to mind the fact that the fifth cultural epoch and those who are its bearers have the task of consciously re-establishing clairvoyant knowledge in human souls. The fifth cultural epoch will not come to an end before a certain amount of clairvoyant knowledge has taken hold of a relatively large portion of humanity. It is true, what Herder says, that Enlightenment will spread over the earth. All knowledge that we acquire from the purely sensory outer world, all thoughts that we have purely as after-images of this outer world, cannot be brought so unconditionally into the spiritual world while we are sleeping. It is true that the thoughts, the ideas that we have, extend to a certain degree to the beings of the higher hierarchies, with the exception of immoral impulses. The images of the outer world that we acquire do indeed reach into the spiritual world to some extent, but they do not extend very far, and above all, no further than the sphere of the archangels. Thus, if a person is full of ideas that derive from the sense world, he cannot bring ideas developed solely from the world of the senses very far into the spiritual worlds. However, such supersensible ideas as we may experience are brought far into the spiritual worlds, and those beings who belong to the hierarchy of the archangels receive their impressions and bear them into later times. And the supersensible knowledge that is borne aloft into the spiritual worlds through the ego and astral body of human beings is subsequently related to the process of earthly evolution. What is now formed is not the active influence associated with moral impulses, the fructifying seeds, but the seeds for what we call the advancement of the earth. The rejection of supersensible ideas by an age 
signifies the condemning of a future age to make no progress in earthly evolution. Someone who rejects supersensible ideas hinders the progress of future ages insofar as it is up to him. If a whole people became completely materialistic, this materialism of a whole people would condemn the earth to come to a standstill in its evolution for a future age, naturally to a certain extent, because the other peoples would not necessarily reject supersensible ideas. Thus here too we see again that the acquisition of supersensible ideas has a significance in the earthly process itself. Causes and effects, therefore, have a connection with the earthly process as a whole. Those people who are, in a certain sense, conscious materialists in our present time have actually been seduced by Aramanic spirits, for Araman has a great interest in obstructing rightful progress. Again, we see that spiritual science is in a position to intensify the individual human soul's feeling of responsibility toward the totality of the world. We see that spiritual science draws us away from the self and makes us participants in the whole unfolding process of humanity, that spiritual science is in its very nature a selfless activity of the human soul. In a certain respect, everything living in supersensible ideas is reflective of the moral life. Thus there is nothing more disturbing for knowledge of the supersensible worlds than filling the human soul with immoral impulses. Basically, we see from this what a deep foundation there is for saying that as preparation for clairvoyant development, an eminently moral way of thinking is demanded of human beings. It is indeed the task of the fifth epoch to ensure that human beings undertake to develop spiritual knowledge in a conscious way, so that in the post-Atlantean age that is still to come, the further advance of humanity is not impeded, so that such an advance may truly take place. And if, after all that has been spoken of now in recent days, we have to a quite particular degree ascribed the predisposition for spiritual knowledge to the Central European peoples, it must be clear to us that the further existence of the undisturbed development of Central European culture is of considerable significance. If in the context of what has been said we now turn our attention to the horizon of specifically European life, what do we find? There is, in the first place, a connection between the life of the various peoples and the life of the higher hierarchies. You need only to study the cycle about the development of the folk souls that was held in Christiania, and which is especially important at the present time, you need only to give it your serious attention, and you will see how archangelic beings influence the life of peoples, how this life of the various peoples, as it interacts with the higher hierarchies, is made manifest in what takes place here on earth. When we consider an individual human being, we know that his ego development is a slow and gradual process. It is true that consciousness of the ego begins in early childhood, from the time back to which one can remember. But this ego becomes ever more mature. It advances in its development. In our time there are considerable errors with respect 
to this ego development. There is far too little awareness that such a development of the ego is taking place in life. And one may have the experience that people today reckon themselves sufficiently mature in their earliest youth to judge everything, because they do not know that a certain age must first be reached in order to judge particular things, since only through this will the ego have reached sufficient maturity. As it is in a person's individual life, so it is also with the life of peoples. However, we must bear the following in mind if we want to understand the life of peoples in relation to individual human life on the physical plane. A human individual matures with respect to ego development by becoming more and more mature in himself. He also learns to have a better overview of the outer world. What do we know of the outer world when we have reached the age of twenty or twenty-five? And what can we know if we spend our lives in a proper orderly way if we have lived for a further ten years? A spiritual scientist has to acquire a sense for such things. Thus this is how the ego stands in relation to the outer world, in relation to what surrounds this ego. It is different with the beings of the higher hierarchies. These beings of the higher hierarchies stand, for their part, in such a relation to our ego as we do to the things of the outer world. For us the phenomena and beings of the mineral, plant and animal kingdoms are the object. For the beings of the higher hierarchies, for example, our egos are the object. However, the relationship of the beings of the higher hierarchies to our egos is not one of perception, as we have with respect to the outer world, but is more an irradiating of our ego with the will of the higher hierarchies, an influence of the will of the higher hierarchies. Those archangelic beings that have the task of guiding the peoples truly stand in such a relation to the human individuals belonging to the peoples, as we stand with our faculties of perception toward the things of the outer world. We are the objects for these archangelic beings. What for us is the outer world? We are as human beings for the archangels, except that with us it is more a process of perception and with the archangels more a process of will. But with regard to this will process, the archangel also undergoes a development. This archangel, likewise, undergoes a maturation of his soul, though not with respect to his ego, but with respect to deeper forces of his soul. He undergoes a development through which he then gradually attains a different relationship to the human individuals belonging to his people. Just as with our more mature ego, we achieve a different relationship to our surroundings. Let us, for example, take the archangelic being to whom the guidance of what we know as the Italian people has been assigned in the course of history. This archangelic being has, for a long time, had a relationship to the Italian people such that it has essentially come to influence the higher parts of the soul. In its further course of development, however, this archangelic being has been working not only into the higher regions of the soul, but also into its lower aspects, into the passions and impulses of the soul, 
that are still connected with the body. Thus the development of the archangelic being goes further. Firstly, it works more upon the soul nature itself. In the later course of its development, it becomes more powerful and works into that aspect of the soul that is more connected with the body. And we can, with respect to the Italian people, state that around the year 1530, the archangel underwent the stage in his development which can be characterized by saying, formerly he worked more upon the soul. Now he begins to impregnate with his will the soul insofar as it pervades the body. And now for the first time, the Italian people really begins with respect to its outer world to set about developing its national character. Study the history of the Italian people before the period specified, around the middle of the 16th century, and you will see that the archangel has still been influencing the inner soul qualities of the people in the Italian peninsula. But that, then, the outward national character, as we know it at present, really developed for the first time. Before this time, and such a point of time exists for every people, the soul life of the people is still vitally alive. This is so that the soul life of a people can receive this or that quality. The qualities are not yet so energetically imprinted. After this time, when the archangel has developed his will relationships to the deeper qualities of the soul, the character of the people becomes fixed. It enters into actual physical qualities. And the time begins when one can hardly approach the people with something that does not correspond with the national character, when a certain nervousness becomes apparent if one comes with something that does not wholly lie in the national line or stream. For the French people, this point of time can also be determined fairly accurately. It is, of course, only approximate, but for the French people, it can be assigned to the period around the year 1600, at the beginning of the 17th century, and for the English people, in the middle of the 17th century, around the year 1650. If you go back before this period to the time of the Middle Ages, you will see how much of a sense of community the peoples of Europe still have, and that the forming of the national characters of the various peoples begins in the periods that I have indicated. The archangel undergoes a development such that one can say, formerly his forces were still weaker, so that he could only influence the inner regions of the soul. Subsequently, the forces became stronger. He is able to extend his forces to the physical realm and thereby brings about the sharply delineated national character. Certain phenomena begin to become understandable if you apply such insights to historical study. Consider that at the time when the English people had its Shakespeare, the national character had not yet been formed in this way so that the fact that Shakespeare could no longer be understood precisely on the part of the English people has its origin in that the archangel has bound the differentiated national character in his firm embrace. There will only be a real study of history in the future 
if people no longer, as was generally the case in the 19th century, base their study of history on the premise that ideas are effective elements in history. A person can have ideas, but ideas cannot work as forces in history. Angels, archangels, and primal forces can also have ideas, but ideas must always proceed from beings. What exerts an influence must be a being. The whole study of history of the 19th century, insofar as it speaks of ideas in history, is a chimera, because it is based on the belief that ideas are able to develop and freely move in a continuous stream of time. We can now raise the question, how is this with the German people? Was there also a specific time when the archangel reached a particular stage? Such a time has already come. But there is a certain difference between the German people and other peoples. We know that the human soul consists of the sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul. You can also see from the lectures about the folk souls that the archangel of the Italian people dedicates the forces available to him to working mainly upon the sentient soul, in the case of the French people, upon the intellectual or mind soul, and in that of the British people, upon the consciousness soul, and with the German people, the influence is upon the ego, which extends its authority over the three soul members. Thus the relationship of the archangel to the individual egos of the German people differs from that of the Western peoples. A point of time has already come when the archangel of the German people has taken hold of physical life or the lower aspect of soul life insofar as it enters into the physical domain. This is approximately the time between 1750 and, say, 1830. If one cares to study these things properly, one will discover some amazing insights into the course of development of various peoples. And if someone would but involve himself in studying the truly immense difference that exists in German life between people of the 19th and 20th centuries and those who lived 200 years earlier, he would see how considerable this difference is. At that time, the archangel exerted his influence upon the national character of the German people, just as the archangels exerted their influence upon the other peoples at the times that I have indicated. But one could say that he withdrew it again. He did not leave his mark so energetically and so thoroughly upon the physical organism as happened with the other peoples. Hence it came about that what occurred in the second half of the nineteenth century was that the German people unconsciously received all manner of influences from the other peoples. And this has in our time already led to tragic conflicts. Just think of something, such as the fact that in his whole world conception, insofar as he has based this world conception on science, Ernst Haeckel is utterly English completely anglicized, that he has embraced English thought forms. Everything that he thinks is influenced by English nature. He takes Darwin and Huxley as his starting point. He regards Spencer as his philosophical god. 
And whereas one cannot really translate a book by Hegel or a book from our spiritual science into English, it is very easy to translate Heckel into English. You will be astonished that I say this, because you are well aware that spiritual scientific books are translated into English. But what is in the books can only approximately be rendered in English translation. It is not really there, but only approximately. One cannot, for example, ever really translate into English the archetypically German sentence that belongs together with the sensibility of Meister Eckhart and everything that has developed in German culture in relation to Meister Eckhart. One cannot really translate this sentence into English, quote, In dem Gemüte lebt das Fünklein, in dem sich in der Menschenseele die Weltseele offenbart. Close quote. Prethesis, the spark wherein the soul of the world manifests itself in the human soul dwells within the heart. It is impossible to translate it properly into English since there is no equivalent for what is experienced in the word gemüt. It is similar with the Hegelian dictum that forms a basic nerve of German philosophy. Sein und Nichtsein vereinigen sich zur höheren Einheit im Werden. Being and non-being are united in a higher unity in becoming, close parenthesis, impossible to translate into English. Of course, one can translate everything, but that which is experienced through such a sentence cannot be reproduced in this language. The German language also has the particular property that it permits a certain fluidity. Think how infinitely easy it is to say when something is translated into English or French, this is wrong, one does not say such a thing. We Germans may not develop the bad habit of saying that something is wrong, but we must keep our language fluid. That is a radical way of putting it, of course. But if you go through our lecture cycles, you will see how much effort is devoted to finding ever new word structures, also word structures from which new words are formed. This derives from the fact that the activity of the archangel, of the German people, has ceased to be so sharply defined. He merely made an approach in the course of something less than a century and then left the people free again. There is infinitely much substance in what I am saying. But this also has to be so, for the German people has the task of transforming its idealism into spirit knowledge. Fichte, Schelling and Hegel, who are so attacked today, have created a thinking which, it is true, is not spiritualism or spiritual science but which, if one inwardly meditates upon it, does indeed lead to spiritual science. But if this is to happen, the German national character must continue to be fluid. It must make it possible for one to say that whereas one can be an Italian, a Frenchman or an Englishman, one is constantly becoming a German. In the case of the German people, the archangel has only established the basis for forming the national character. And in the same way being nationalistic or chauvinistic, in the way that the West European peoples are, would be an untruth for a German, something that he cannot be. Of course, one can do anything, but it does not correspond to the true nature of a German person. 
Something entirely different applies to the Russian people. With the Russian people, it must above all be clearly perceived that the archangel relates to the individual egos of the people quite differently than is the case with Western and Central European peoples. The situation with the West European peoples is that the archangel influences, with his will emanations, the sentient soul of Italians, the intellectual or mind soul of the French, the consciousness soul of the British, and the ego of Germans. But with the Russian people, the folk spirit does not directly influence human souls. He, as it were, hovers over the people like a cloud, and the soul can only have a dim sense of and a yearning for him. He has in a certain sense remained a group spirit, and there is no inward interaction of the folk spirit with the individual human egos. One can hardly have a more tragic, more serious impression than if one is present at a Russian Orthodox service where the human ego of those who participate in it as believers is almost completely excluded. A totally impersonal universality that disregards the individual personality pervades everything that happens. A quality not addressed to a human nature holds sway in this service. This is a direct expression of the fact that the Russian soul has not yet awoken to that enlivening quality deriving from the contact of the individual soul with the folk spirit. Everything tends toward rigid patterns and stereotypes, as exemplified both in the way things are done and in icon painting. We are confronting an entirely different phenomenon from what is the case in Western Europe. We find that the archangel has not yet come to the point of influencing the national character. Nationality is, therefore, still a dream of the soul for Russians. They do, of course, constantly speak of the truly Russian man, and Russian writers do the same, but this is a dream of the soul which is especially emphasized because the folk spirit is not embodied within human beings, and because the Russian has a longing for a folk spirit that lies above the purely personal. One must look into these deep mysteries, and one will then understand how the cultural realms of Europe relate to one another. It would, of course, never occur to me to see in this interface between these cultural realms the cause of present events, but indirectly it does indeed play a part. In particular, one must be quite clear that the flames of war that are now burning are a mighty sign that we must make ourselves familiar with what is working and weaving within the cultural life of Europe. We look up to beings of the higher hierarchies, we also see these beings of the higher hierarchies in course of development. While we as individual human beings develop our ego, we see these beings develop in such a way that they acquire more and more power to imbue the ego with the will. At first they still keep themselves distant from the ego. They overlight it from above, as with the Russian people. Then there is simultaneously a more intimate overlighting and living with, as is the case with the German people. And then there is a stricter and more inflexible working of the national character into single human individuals, as is the case with the three West European peoples that have been characterized. 
From this you also see how the present phase of human evolution has come about. If you but look at European history, you will find, if you disregard Russia, where the circumstances are quite different, how similar especially the life of the West European peoples, and in a certain sense also of the Central European peoples is, how a European internationalism reigns. And then we see that from the 14th century onward, a new age dawns for the various peoples. We see that with the coming of this more recent age, the peoples are gripped with a distinctive national character. We see that so much is given to the German people by way of national character at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, the German people feel something of a national character, but do not receive as much in this respect that they ever become absorbed in an inflexible national character. One will find that it lies deeply in the German nature not to need to be absorbed in matters pertaining to national character, that it really has a deep significance when Fichte says, all that freedom wishes of the human soul, all that aspires to the most universal aspect of mankind, belongs to us. Herein lies a free possibility for development of the Central European German character. But there is also that which leads directly to the insight that the West European peoples must indeed reckon with this national character, this fluid national character of the German people. I am well aware that the fluid national character can, precisely in our time, lead to a tragic outcome. Let us think again of Ernst Haeckel. We have seen that in the second half of the 19th century, because the development of the national character was again freely bestowed, he could be influenced so strongly in an English way. And now we come to our own times. This man, Ernst Haeckel, who bears the whole English nature within himself, has hurled the strongest possible words of hatred at the English people. He was the most prominent of those who have returned all English diplomas, prizes, and awards. It would be far more important that people in his position sent back materialistic Darwinism, materialistic Newtonism, and everything that has issued from them, in this respect, we must also simply learn to understand ourselves rightly. We must be able to learn to see things objectively, without nationalistic hatred. It was essentially a kind of cultural prelude of things to come when a few years ago the split necessarily took place between our anthroposophical movement and the theosophical movement with its Indo-English character. This had to happen. Those whose task it is to develop the spiritual view of reality cannot ally themselves with the materialism of a Christ embodied in the flesh. And within our ranks it had to emerge that the second coming of Christ will in reality be the reappearance of Christ in the etheric. This has already been spoken about frequently and can be heard from the mouth of Theodora in my first mystery play. To be sure, we now read in an English theosophical journal I am not making this up, and it is moreover the president of the Theosophical Society who writes this, that the way that the Germans are conducting the war shows what was actually hidden behind the German Theosophical Venture at that time, for it is now, according to her, apparent that it had been taken amiss that the president, Annie Besant, had always allied herself with the Prince of Peace, 
who had such good intentions toward Europe, Edward the Seventh. We are said to have regarded this with immense aversion, and therefore sent to England the agents who were to present our version of theosophy in order to lay our hands on the theosophists there. If we had succeeded, relates the president of the English Theosophical Journal, in getting as far as laying our hands on the whole rich administrative machine, as she puts it, of Indo-English theosophy, of course we wanted nothing of the kind, our plan to bring the poison of our views to India and thereby gain influence over the British government would have come to fulfillment, as would our plan thereby to cause the British people to acknowledge German sovereignty over England. This is the explanation that is now given to theosophists in English theosophical journals. Now see the truth. We must bring it to consciousness, for it does not work if we think about these things as though in a dream. The truth is actually that all that I have written in my book titled Mysticism at the Dawn of the Modern Age is written solely out of the way that spiritualism lives in the cultural stream of Central Europe. The book was at once translated into English, and it was said to us at the time, to me at any rate, that in this book the whole of theosophy can be found. We could now say, if people in London find that the whole of theosophy is to be found in the book, they can go along with us. But we have not taken a step that was anything other than an expression of the evolving spiritualism of Central Europe. And a few months before the outbreak of the war, I was quite particularly touched. It is appropriate that I mention this today, that some of our ladies who are Eurythmists came over to London in order to give a course there. People like Eurythmy. That is good. It should give pleasure. But they did not notice that Eurythmy is something spiritual, the polar opposite of materialistic sport. That on the one hand one has something sweeping through Europe that belongs wholly to materialism and brings materialism right into the movement of human beings through sport, which serves people's amusement and the craving to make oneself healthy, which is completely materialistic, whereas with us every movement is the expression of the spiritual and corresponds precisely with central European spirituality. It is always a matter of working on this foundation and deriving the fruits of spiritual development from it. How sport too has invaded Germany in the second half of the 19th century. We also have more refined sportive activities, the method of Dalcroze is especially worthy of note. How these things have taken hold. One will not now be especially warmly inclined toward him because he is one of those who so dreadfully mock, in quotes, German barbarism. But the movement, discipline that belongs to the German spirit is Eurythmy, whereby the spiritual element that resides in the movements of the etheric body, that belongs naturally to the etheric body, and works within man's supersensible being, is brought to expression in the movements of the outward physical body. Eurythmy rests on the following principles. We have an organ through which the etheric body is prompted into activity, so that the physical body becomes an image of the etheric. This is the case when we speak. But it is not the whole physical body, but the air that is an image of the etheric, 
the sounding word in the air, the way that the air vibrates, is a direct expression of the etheric. If one now takes hold of what lives in the sound, in the word, and extends it to the whole etheric body, and then lets both hands and feet move as the air is moved quite naturally in speaking and singing, then one has eurythmy. For eurythmy is a speaking of the whole human being, so that the help not only of the moving air, but of the human organs is called upon. You can see from such a matter on how universal and all-encompassing a scale the involvement of spiritual science in modern culture is conceived. In order to understand the essence of this, we have been hearing certain things that people do not even think about today, as if through these two lectures that I have now given in this intimate circle, I have achieved nothing more than awakening within you the awareness one should look still further at what spiritual science wishes in a universal respect for human life as a whole. That is already sufficient. For the task of spiritual science will not really be fulfilled by our familiarizing ourselves with specific theoretical concepts. This task of spiritual science will be fulfilled when it enters into everything, into the whole of life, and imbues this life with spirit. And in our fifth cultural epoch, it is necessary to bring about the spiritual awareness to understand these things within that people to whom this task especially falls, to bring about a sense of responsibility with regard to evolution. It is easy, really easy, to criticize the evolution of humanity. But this is not the point, for the things that happen occur with necessity even if they are at variance with what the good progressive forces want with human beings. We now have, in a certain sense, to have living on an ongoing basis within our culture something opposed to these good progressive forces. Among the many things in this category is, for example, this, that because of the present cultural standpoint of our time, we are, for the sake of progress, as one says, really beginning to maltreat our children from the most tender age. For there is indeed nothing more contradictory to human nature than to let children from their seventh year to begin to learn school subjects and to teach them in a school environment as one does at present. It would be the greatest fortune for someone to grow up quite differently and to receive what is being brought to people in their seventh year only in their ninth or tenth year. But this is not, be it noted, said with the intention that it should not happen, for general cultural progress demands it, it must be so. Nevertheless, the counter-pole must be created. And whereas on the one hand we badly maltreat the etheric bodies of children through having certain kinds of schooling, because we inculcate something in them that is entirely unsuitable for them in these years. We must create a counterpole by introducing eurythmy and bringing to the children what eurythmy represents, so that the etheric body has the balance in these movements that are innate to it. Eurythmy will become something that is quite general, for evolution does not reach its goal through moving forward in a one-sided way, but through moving forward by means of opposites. One must always create the counterpole, assert the value of the counterpole. Evolution is motivated by opposites. 
and a counter-pole must be created to the maltreating of the etheric body through modern schooling by making the etheric body more elastic, by bringing it naturally into movement in the sense that this is attempted in the first rudiments of our eurythmy. Thus something that perhaps many people today still refer to as our eurythmy is indeed connected with what I have to call the universal character of our spiritual movement. When, on the one hand, we see how this enters into the fabric of outer life and, on the other, we become deeply aware that the depths of the Christ impulse are connected with what we bring together in spiritual science, we have a full range of knowledge of the universal character of spiritual science. A great deal depends on our capacity to form for ourselves a sense for this universal character of spiritual science. And I have to say that it is at this time an experience of the weightiest kind that the present destiny-laden events are not felt at a deeper level, that they do not make stronger impressions on our contemporaries. For, quite apart from everything that one can observe outwardly, these fateful events are a warning signal, a warning against perpetuating what the last centuries have brought to humanity by way of materialism, a warning to make an abrupt change in the evolutionary path of mankind. And all that is being undergone in terms of blood and death should be experienced as if it had been sent to the earth from the gods in order to teach us how necessary spirituality is to the further evolution of mankind. It is, for example, really lamentable when we experience in these times that people give lectures and also write articles where they say, if only the time might soon come when free contact and communication of the peoples is restored to its former state, since otherwise the Germans could succumb to the delusion of returning again to the metaphysics of Fichte and Hegel and developing metaphysical impulses. Even in these fateful days, it is presented as a fear that something of the nature of metaphysical impulses might reappear. These months should be awakening metaphysical impulses. We see in so many cases, to the sorrowful experience of mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, sisters, brothers, and further human connections, that an unconscious belief in the significance of the supersensible is passing through the world like a breath of magic. Thousands and thousands of people are sacrificially crossing the threshold of death. And when peace is restored to our earth, should people be allowed to go on preaching that human life is circumscribed by birth and death? The sacrificial deaths would then have been offered for nothing. For these sacrificial deaths derive, even though not with any clarity for many, from the firm belief that these deaths are the dawn of a new age. Anyone who dies on the battlefield truly wants to affirm something other than merely saying, here ends my body. How meaningless it would be to fill European earth in our time with corpses if the materialistic world conception had even only a smattering of legitimacy. We must inscribe this in our souls above all else. Those who will survive this time will live in the period when peace will again reign, and they will be betraying those who have died 
if they do not work on the spiritualizing of human evolution. For not to work on the spiritualizing of mankind actually signifies none other than saying to those who have shed their blood and lost their lives, you died for nothing. For if materialism is right, they have all died for nothing. A spiritual scientist must be especially imbued with this feeling. I have during these days been able to read again that there are people today, and in the 19th century these people became increasingly numerous, who maintain it was a prejudice of St. Paul that he said that if Christ had not risen, our words and our faith would be in vain. But these words of Paul are true. For only through what happened, through the mystery of Golgotha, has the human soul again been invested with powers that lead it into the spiritual world. We have spoken of these powers, but our time calls us with clear tones. The death of so many is in vain if materialism is right. If materialism is right, they will have all died for nothing. If we imbue ourselves with such thoughts, those who have made their forces available to the great advance in human evolution in a death that occurred in the flower of youth will have their forces strengthened by the thoughts that rise up from our souls. If human souls direct spirit words, what they have by way of spiritual thoughts and feelings, Then, as I said also yesterday at the end of my lecture, the forces from above that have gathered, the unspent etheric forces, will meet with the spiritual thoughts of human beings and usher in a new age. We shall therefore conclude also today with the words that have during these days given us the meaning, the felt significance of the position that we occupy as spiritual scientists in our time. Quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice. There will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote. The end of Lecture 6.